The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. In feudal Japan, a tailor desired, desired to travel to another province. He thought it would be wise to dress as a samurai warrior for his protection. No sooner had he arrived at his destination that he accidentally bumped a real samurai. The man was indignant. You have dishonored me. Meet me at the edge of town at noon and we will settle this with swords, he said. The tailor was taken aback by the turn of events. He was no warrior. A few moments later, he wandered into the presence of a Zen master. He related the story to him and asked for some insight into how he could face his fate with dignity. Do you study some discipline? The monk asked. I am a tailor, he said. How do you approach your work? The monk questioned. The tailor explained how he focused on each task with singleness of mind. The monk replied, When you face your samurai today, do not regard him as he stands before you. Instead, use your tailor's mind to focus completely as you take off your outer coat and fold it neatly. Then tie up the sleeves of your shirt to get them out of your way. When you rise, close your eyes and draw your sword straight above your head, concentrating all your energy upon this act. At the first sign of movement from your enemy, bring your sword straight down. If you feel a cool breeze on top of your head, that will be death. The tailor thanked the master for his instruction. When the tailor arrived at the scene of the duel, he ignored those who had come to watch him and his opponent. Following the instructions of the Zen master, he approached the fight as if he were in his shop working on clothes. He took off his outer coat with singleness of mind and remained focused throughout each act. Finally, he drew his sword high above his head and closed his eyes. The samurai had been watching with awe. He had never seen a warrior so meticulous about his garment and so unconcerned 
when facing death. He surmised that he was facing a great master. He bowed. I have been too hasty. I realize now that you did not bump me on purpose. There is no need for us to fight. When the tailor later told the Zen master what had happened, he was curious about the samurai's reaction. <coughs> the master explained, he saw no fear of death in you. And so his own fear came to the surface. The tailor now understood the essence of the warrior way. Do you? When faced with danger, most people react with self-consciousness. Their responses then become tainted by their fears, the fear of pain, the fear of suffering, and their desire to avoid that. The mind is divided between two distinctly different functions, taking decisive action and worrying about the consequences of failure. If you dwell on pain and suffering, you increase the likelihood of those very results. Fearing the worst is not in itself a preventative. If you wobble between fear and taking action, your response will be to hesitate or to avert. Dualistic thought always means disaster. Fear is the great enemy, the force which can grip the mind and paralyze us. On the path to developing a warrior's instinct, we must replace fear with faith. Faith gives me rise to the greatest power a warrior or anyone else could have, wisdom, sometimes called instinctive wisdom. It is this power which was demonstrated by the samurai who faced ten armed swordsmen and one, and by the Shaolin monks. It is the same power which works in ordinary people who effect amazing rescues, changes, transformations, perform uncanny feats during emergencies. It is a power which lies hidden in each of us in each of you. But how do I know I have it, you may ask. You have it because you are a human being, and all those who have demonstrated these gifts are mere mortals such as you and me. Students of the way, who sincerely probe the deepest meaning, realize that the real enemy that must be defeated is oneself. Before you can begin to bring about change, you must take control of your thoughts. A warrior must believe in his ability to win. He must believe in his purpose. She must believe in her cause. She must believe in herself. If he or she cannot believe in themselves, they are simply sacrificing their life when they enter the battlefield. To a defender, winning means only surviving.
So good evening. Before I continue, I must admit that when I look out at the numbers tonight, or the lack of numbers, I was reminded of two songs from the 70s. One was, I went to a garden party, and the other was, if that's all there is, then let's just break out the booze and have a ball. I said to uh, Chico, when he checked in on me, definitely Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. So, renunciation is the attitude toward mundane things such as wealth, power, and fame, that they are not in themselves sources of true and lasting happiness, and for the bodhisattva or spiritual warrior are only useful in so far as they enable us to make progress toward our spiritual objective. That objective or goal being to realize our inner divinity and manifest our enlightenment in the world for the benefit of all the many beings. What we need to progress is adequate food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and time necessary for spiritual practice or training. These are the requisites of a spiritual life. A bodhisattva or spiritual warrior is motivated exclusively to help everyone attain the true and lasting happiness found only by living a spiritual life and he or she has a responsibility to help everyone attain the requisites of a spiritual life. The question we want to explore this evening, should bodhisattvas become involved in the political arena as a method of helping everyone attain the requisites of a spiritual life? I say yes. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights explicitly affirms that everyone has a right to adequate food, clothing, shelter, and medical care. A Bodhisattva is committed to defending these rights because the truth that everyone should be loved equally is the basis of these rights. All the world religions teach renunciation of the pursuit of wealth, renunciation of the pursuit of power and fame as sources of true happiness. All world religions teach that we should equally love all beings. Anyone who claims to be a religious person or spiritual and who thinks that people are not entitled to meaningful work and adequate food, clothing, shelter, and medical care is a very confused person. Bodhisattvas understand that we are not in competition with others in the pursuit of happiness. The true and lasting happiness that comes 
at the end of walking a correct spiritual path is equally available to everyone. People who think we are in competition with one another in the pursuit of happiness and who think that happiness comes from the accumulation of wealth and power are ignorantly causing their own future misery and contributing to the misery of others. So, out of love for every confused person who is looking down on others whom they are viewing as lazy moochers, <coughs> a bodhisattva has a responsibility to help them overcome their ignorance. Even some Buddhist teachers refuse to become involved in government policy debates, thinking that becoming involved is this kind of debate in this kind of debate can only be a mundane worldly concern. This is completely mistaken. What makes an activity or enjoyment either mundane or spiritual is the motive behind the activity. It is a mundane worldly activity to seek political power and, flu and influence as sources of happiness. It is a mundane enjoyment to gloat about the victory of one's favorite political candidate. It is not a mundane worldly concern to use the political arena to help everyone acquire the material requisites of a meaningful spiritual life. Buddhist teachers who are content to think and comment that poverty is a karmic result of past greedy behavior and who don't try to teach those who aspire to positions of political power that they can and must work to protect everyone's basic material rights are unwittingly doing what Marx claimed, using religion as an opiate. Talking and thinking this way can be an opiate, blocking our own and others' compassionate experiences of the suffering of the less fortunate. The spiritual warrior strives to help everyone become motivated to use their own material resources to practice spiritual path, which helps one to overcome what Buddhists call the root delusions, the delusion of ignorance, the delusion of anger and greed. Greed underlies most of the current problems of the world's economy. Greed is what, is what led to the disastrous decisions that caused the Western banking crisis. Greed is what underlies business decisions to transfer manufacturing to those parts of the world paying very low wages. Consumer greed also lies behind the transfer of manufacturing jobs to low-wage countries. Because if people did not think that their happiness depends upon having the biggest possible store of material things at the lowest possible price, they would not be making purchasing decisions that reward businesses for shifting manufacturing to low-wage markets. Although market regulation to prevent fraudulent and reckless business behavior is important, we cannot solve the root problem 
of most of our economic problems by merely instituting market regulations. On the other hand, if everyone were to develop universal love and compassion and view work and commerce as a means of provisioning all with the requisites of a spiritual life, people would continue to be motivated to work and the truths of their labor would truly benefit everyone. Some may argue that it is a mere utopian fantasy to think that it is possible for everyone to develop universal love and compassion and view commerce as a means of providing everyone with the requisites of a spiritual life. This only seems a utopian fantasy because of two current cultural states of affairs. The first is that our culture is awash in messages encouraging material greed. And the second is that too few spiritual teachers are putting effort into the project of guiding their followers to the attainments of renunciation, universal love, and universal compassion. Jesus never said that loving your neighbor as yourself is a lovely but unreachable goal. He said it was one of the two greatest commandments. He also advised not to seek treasures, quote, where moth and rust consume. We know that Jesus did not foolishly advise us to do what is beyond our capabilities because there are tried and true methods for cultivating renunciation, universal love, and universal compassion. Bodhisattvas are different from those who have not accomplished these spiritual attainments only because they have put these methods into practice or they have done the work. Spiritual guides such as Bodhisattvas have a responsibility to explain the rational, loving and compassionate foundation of correct government programs concerning the minimum wage, universal access to health care, and what constitutes an adequate social safety net for those innocently out of work. The correct policies must be determined by asking what someone committed to contributing to the common good must have in order to lead a meaningful spiritual life and how to make sure everyone has the opportunity to engage in work that provides them with the requisites of a spiritual life. The culture of greed has never and will never protect everyone's right to the basic necessities of a spiritual life because it rejects the goal of the spiritual life and embraces the delusion that happiness comes from possessing material things. Historically, the proponents of the culture of greed have publicly granted that, that everyone should have the basic necessities of life and argued that greed can provide them to all but hasn't thus far, only because government has overregulated and interfered with the pursuit of material greed. Now that the bankruptcy of these claims is brutally apparent, some prominent politicians have boldly asserted that no one has a right to adequate food, clothing, shelter, and medical care, water, and anyone receiving social safety net support 
is a lazy freeloader. Because of these ignorant assertions, Bodhisattvas have a priceless opportunity to enter into the political debate and teach renunciation, universal love, universal compassion, and the true value of work, which is to provide oneself and others with the material requisites of a spiritual life. Let us, those of us who understand these spiritual truths, not waste this current precious opportunity. When we enter into the political discussion to teach them, we are not dirtying our hands in a messy, mundane world that we should abandon. We are staying true to our mission of leading everyone to the true and lasting happiness found only in a spiritual life. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, permission. Sure. I, uh, I've been amazed. I was at uh, Sacred Heart on Friday at Lent, and they had a young woman there from Ecuador who was part of the human trafficking, and she was telling the story, and their Lenten thing was uh, to raise a little bit of money for this one. Um, the, this uh, program that she belongs to to try to help uh, people escape and uh, or be recognized for uh, their struggle. And um, I'm amazed with all this talk in the church, uh, churches of um, abortion and um, gay marriage and all of this, why in heaven's name would we even be concerned when we have this kind of horror going on and why aren't all the synagogues and all the temples and all the, you know, speaking out about the, these horrific situations which are going on now all across Europe and in this country and it's just like incredible. I know you had a special prayer day but um, I'm just amazed that, that the churches are so impotent anymore with this. Uh, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, uh, and various groups and churches to go off and do certain things but they don't want to tackle the hard stuff. Yeah. 2,700 years ago, when the Buddha taught on the, this matter, he spoke about three poisons. And he wanted us to take the term poison literally. He meant that greed, being the first he spoke about, is a poison. And it is clearly a poison that we have been drinking in the Dixie Cups in our nation for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. Perhaps maybe f at least the last 40 years I've measured it or more. Yeah. Okay. And he wanted us to understand that it, like any poison, if we were to drink you know, a cup of poison, the body, it fills the entire body. It doesn't just affect one part of the body. It kills the entire body. So when we take a look at our world as a body, as the larger body, it makes sense that this poison has permeated all parts of the body, including the religious parts of the body. Okay? So, 
as the story of the samurai and the tailor points out, or should point out to all of us, in order for us to even begin to approach this tonight in the manner and with the objective I intended for tonight, uh, one of the uh, historical memories that came up for me were the freedom riders of the 1960s. And the story points to many assets of that movement. Before the freedom riders were even permitted to go to Montgomery and the other places, they were prepared and trained in a particular way. And if you were listening to the instructions of the Zen master to the tailor, he spoke of, again, approaching the battle with the samurai without bringing to the battle his stuff. The Freedom Riders, for example, if you recall, those of you who, who I think in this room lived long enough to remember that, um, you know, dressed in shirt and tie. They were told to cut their hair and to make sure that they uh, brought this image to the protest. They were told that they were not to inject into the protest their anger or their hatred or their resentment to the opposition in any way. And when, this, when they were trained in this way, the purpose of the training, which is the first and most necessary uh, ingredient to skillful or effective opposition to greed in the world, uh, was again to enter with what Zen talks about, no self. Okay? The battle that we have certainly ahead of us cannot take on the shape and form of personal hatred. We cannot be oppositional to the personalities who, who, are, uh, in, who are occupants of the opposition. We cannot, be we cannot be shooting. Trump is not the issue. Trump is the effect. And the cause, again, if you were listening to the reading, is much larger than just the difference between two political parties. The cause is something, again, if you were listening to the reading, and if you were listening to what I just shared with you, we are all responsible for. All of us have somehow contributed to that cause. Once again, uh, when we talk about corporate greed, you take a corporation like Walmart, which I know very few people that have not shopped at Walmart, okay? And we know that Walmart, you know, makes and manufactures and purchases products from overseas in countries where people are exploited. We know that. And the only reason, when I ask people about why they shop at Walmart, is because of the low prices. And again, as the, the reading that I just shared with you points to, if our purpose for living, if our reason for being is simply survival, just like the Zen master said to the tailor, if you go there just to survive, he says, the wind you feel across your forehead will be death. 
okay? So he sends them into the battle for a larger purpose than that. And the first thing required, and any samurai will tell you this, any dedicated martial artist will tell you this, is that you cannot go into battle with the fear of failure. You cannot go into battle with simply to survive. Our opposition to greed, whether it's corporate greed, government greed, wherever we find it, has to be rooted in something or a purpose larger than just our survival. Just our survival. Because when we engage in the conversation about survival, we will always be tempted to the lower price. You know? And that will always sound justifiable. I mean, people who, again, contribute to, as the writer suggests, to corporate greed by filling the pockets of the, of the uh, CEOs and what have you, by purchasing there, uh, feel very rational about that. You know, it's kind of very much like, you know, when you, if you've ever had the opportunity to really speak with a racist, as I have, over the years, members of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, they have a very rational mentality about their racism, okay? Just like when you listen to the audience of Donald Trump talk about, you know, deporting the immigrants. They have a very rational uh, argument about that and so forth. So the bottom line is our purpose in opposing this in, in the world must be larger than the, the, um, the conventional conversation. We need a new conversation about this. And the new conversation for the Bodhisattva, the conversation is simple. It comes down to what I have always referred to over the past 41 years in various different forms. It comes down to what I call the principle of identity. We live our lives like everyone else in the world. I live my life the same way Donald Trump lives his life. We live our lives according to what we identify with, the principle of identity. If we accept that life is nothing more than a social security number, and the value of a human being is nothing more than what they produce in the marketplace, and that happiness is exclusively a function of the collection of great wealth and material things, then we cannot argue about the world we have. You see? Um, when you were talking, the whole time you were speaking, it, what was going through my mind was just an example of um, the spiritual basis. When you think of the New Deal and Roosevelt and the things you did at the time of the Great Depression mm -hmm. and when you came into office, you talked about fear itself and the money changers and all that he spoke of, um, it just seemed like, uh, and, and the forces of opposition that he, he had to face in the Supreme Court at the time and the people who were going against him, the conservatives who were coming at him for his philosophy, which seemed at the right time to be an appropriate philosophy given the conditions of the country at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was he had this whole opposition, which was the forces of greed and people who did not support his policies. So it just seems like, you know, that was how long ago was that? That was forty. That was sixty, seventy years ago. Uh, I think the same forces are at work right now, 
I mean, the same philosophies are still oppositional toward one another, but it doesn't seem like, it seems like their forces are getting stronger, or they've grown, like the monster, like the, the behemoth has become greater, and we don't know how to deal with it. And it, it just seems like, I, I mean, there's certain forces who are trying to oppose it, you know, but it's overwhelming to see how, like you say, greed is really overwhelming us. And it's mm -hmm. individual, like you said, it's all, it comes from the individual. Mm -hmm. So unless you check yourself, the society is just at large, you know, we don't know where to go with it. Absolutely, I agree with you. And again, the whole approach from, again, the Zen Buddhist, the, the, the icon of the Bodhisattva and spiritual warrior, is that the transformation from greed must happen within me first. And again, uh, I, when I talk to my father, who is a depression child, uh, about those days, one of the things that repeatedly comes up in our conversation is he talks about how everyone was prepared to and everyone did sacrifice to make that happen. Okay? It wasn't, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, get wealthy so that I can get out of the depression. Communities worked together. He talked about, for example, when the day Pearl Harbor was bombed, how in his small city, uh, miles and miles of long of fathers and brothers and sisters and sons lined up. And how those who didn't go to war worked to collect medals. How people grew potatoes and other vegetables on their front lawn and shared them with each other and their neighbors. There was a sense of, again, uh, a collective uh, 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 effort here that was, that was fueled by a sense of a willingness to sacrifice. Now, I use that word sacrifice in this way. Uh, when I hear you say, and you are correct, that people feel overwhelmed by this, and maybe feel that they can't come up with a solution. We must, again, the Buddhist approach would be, what is blocking that? Because we know the answer, okay? So again, if my whole view of this is a fearful view of what's gonna to happen to me, then yes, I'm not gonna see the answer because that is definitely going to prevent me from seeing the answer. So for example, let me say that the answer is to cut debt in your life immediately, to stop buying stuff you don't need, especially the stuff that's cheap, okay? To, to learn how to live more simply. The money talks to corporations, okay? So if you're not filling their coffers, they're not making a profit. When you take a look at, again, the changes that have happened, let's take, for example, the most current one that I heard was about SeaWorld. Did you hear about what happened at SeaWorld? They finally got it about the whales. Well, they got it about the whales because people have, were not coming. They were not buying tickets to go see this abuse of the sentient beings any longer. Uh, so again, like the conservatives themselves will say, money talks, okay? And again, what, 
what the reading that I just shared with you points to is that if we keep feeding the coffers, you know, the coffers, if we keep filling them of the corporations, they're not going to change. They have no reason to change. Um, I was just thinking, as you were saying, in dealing with the corporations, I think of the story of David and Goliath. Um, oh, what was it? Well, someone wrote, um, I can't remember the author who wrote about it, but the story did, like, David um, approached Goliath in, uh, just as you're talking about dealing with the corporations, David approached Goliath with a slingshot. And this is a, a thing, yeah. a, a, a monster who was much bigger than him. Yeah. But he had a, his own tactical way of dealing with the, with this giant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he used his tools that worked for him. And he also, I, I can't remember who wrote about this. He took a step back and and went at him from a distance. He didn't step within his territory. So right. he and and he killed. Him. cannot ignore the key method, the universal method or means that he brought to the battle, and that was his faith. Yeah. He believed exactly. yeah. in his cause, he believed in his purpose, he had faith in himself, which did not, did not excuse the fact that he also was afraid, okay? And see, for most of us, we wait until we feel able. The Davids that take on the Goliaths enter the battlefield at great risk. They may believe, and they, but they also, like the teachings of the Zen master, he said, if you bring your fear, if, you, if he had for one moment shown fear to the opposing samurai, he would have been dead. He would have been dead. What caused that samurai, which would have been Goliath, he was certainly the Goliath to the tailor, because the tailor was not a samurai. He had no understanding of how to use the sword. What caused the samurai to back down was he saw no fear in his opponent. No. He saw no fear in his opponent. And, but the story, if you were listening, points out that the tailor was certainly afraid. That could have been his last moment. But he did not bring his fear to the battle. And that's where we go back to uh, my vision of the freedom fighters and how they were prepared before they were allowed. Uh, another example that I often refer to is uh, when I studied the life of the Sisters of Charity of uh, Mother Teresa's order and so forth. Uh, and I was interested that in the, their constitution that you know, governs the body of nuns, uh, they are not permitted. One of the rules is, is if, they don't, if they don't go to morning prayer, if they don't go to Mass and receive communion, they're not permitted to go out and work with the poor. They must stay, back, stay home. And the whole uh, gist behind that rule is, again, you need to be internally prepared. You need to, be, you need to have conquered, again, your, the real enemy. And the real enemy in this fight against corporate greed in America and around the world is my own greed. 
my own ignorance of what brings on true happiness. So again, as long as I believe that that stuff made available for me to purchase is what's going to make me truly happy, I'm going to continue to do that. So until I awaken to the ignorance of my own greed, the ignorance of my own hatred or resentment of those who have it, as opposed to maybe I who don't, and the ignorance, the third poison that the Buddha talked about, the poison of greed, the poison of hatred and anger or resentment, and the poison of folly or complacency. Complacency, we haven't even talked about that. Again, let's take a look at the numbers here tonight. Complacency, you know, this indifference to what's going on. Uh, you need to know that Donald Trump tweeted again tonight and uh, he tweeted the following. He said uh, that, you know, I'm at 75% now, and it's because the news stations, all of them, have nothing but Trump, 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 okay, on it. Uh, he said, they're just paving my way to the White House. Yeah. I, I really and, and, but he also included how stupid people are. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I really hate to defend Trump. I find them very refreshing. It seems to me like the last 40 or 60 years American politics has been very cozy with each other. Republicans, Democrats, I've been one party, I always vote for them, usually with my holding my nose with the one hand. But um, why say things like that? Well, I think yeah, that, I think that Trump, I agree with you. I think that Trump has done a great service because he has squeezed the boil finally. Yes. He has brought to the surface, uh, in a conversation I was having earlier this week with someone else, I said to them, we need to stop focusing on Trump right. and focus on this one thing that is repeatedly discussed about Trump. And that is when you ask his supporters why they support him, they all say the same thing. He just says what we're thinking. So. To just simply keep him out of the White House is certainly not the solution. Because you have millions of millions of supporters that think that way. Okay? So we need a conversation about the supporters. We need the conversation about racism and bigotry and greed and hatred and all the causes of the polarization going on. That's where we need to be but focusing. As been said, light is the greatest disinfectant. Yeah. I think these groups, to a large extent, have been enclaves, and they can sit around and say this, but it, it's not exposed. Yeah. And, and the other refreshing thing is Bernie, right. who's another one. He's not playing the mold. I right. mean, he's just yeah. I think he, he said the worst thing you could say in politics is with free education, well, we may have to raise taxes. Yeah. I thought the sky was going to fall down. Yeah. Or, Murdoch, but the sky was going to fall. I was going to ask if we could have keeping Trump out of the White House as part of the solution, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. But it's not the only solution. It's not the only solution. Just like he recently suggested that if they try to keep his nomination uh, buried, there will be riots. So it's not the only solution. And, and, the, and again, Trump is the effect of a cause 
that has been going around. And back to what you just said, I agree. I think he has done a great uh, service to bringing that cause to the surface. And the cause is greed. I mean, the cause is greed, and not just corporate greed, but the greed that has permeated the ind individual in this country. Because the only reason why we're voting for Donald Trump is that he has promised to make us all millionaires. <laughs> said way back when it first announced that she thought he was uh, put up to it by Bill Clinton just to screw up the Republicans and get Hillary elected. And I, yeah. yeah, I've heard that I, too. Been, could very much be. Yeah, in the end, it could be one big conspiracy. I'm sorry? I said it won't be the first no, time. No, it won't be the first time. You know, we need to be thinking not only up to November 11th, but what's going to follow. Right. And are we simply going to, after the election, you know, go on with life as usual? You know, because again, for the Bodhisattva, the conversation is not about what party occupies the White House. It's not about what party is right and what party is wrong. It's about this. Every being deserves, merits. When Buddhism talks about each of us possessing a basic goodness, when it talks about each of us are born with a basic goodness, it points to the fact that because of our basic goodness, every individual, red state or blue state, right or left, every individual merits the prerequisites of a spiritual life. Merits whole food, merits clean water, merits you know, uh, a, a working wage. We all merit a life that we can live with and so forth, everyone. That's the real issue. Whether we are talking to a Democratic president or a Republican president, okay? That's the real issue and our approach to correcting this in this nation has to return to that conversation. We have to go back to the conversation that changed the civil rights laws in this country in the 60s. Again, when we ask the question, what brought about the Civil Rights Act? When people saw this on television every night, again and again, the, the horror of the dogs and the fire hoses and the hangings, that basic goodness that exists within all of us caused them to act, caused them. Uh, the, one of the scenes from one of the documentaries was, you know, uh, President Johnson in the White House when, when they were crossing the bridge in Montgomery, stood up and screamed at his press agent, God damn it, 70 million Americans are seeing this. You know, he knew what was coming, that all you had to do was expose this. When we talk about what ended the war in Vietnam, what ended the war in Vietnam was the news coverage of the war in Vietnam. When Americans saw the, the, the horrors of war every night, that's why when we went into Iraq, the, the press was prohibited from, from being a part of that battle. Mm -hmm. That was the tactic. That, that was the first thing they, they, they declared, that the press would not be permitted to film what went on. 
because they knew they know that when when human beings are confronted with the horror when you take a look at what we can go back to gandhi what happened in india was human beings saw the horror of the beatings and what have you and said this has to stop so if our conversation is just a political one where we're arguing about republicans or democrats independents bernie or trump if that's all our conversation is about we can expect things business as usual after november 11th we can expect that our conversation must go to the root issue and the root issue is you know is a function of our of the what i call the principle of identity i will make the right choices and in a moment i want to share with you an example i will make the right choices when i come from a place of identifying myself as a spiritual being and where that identity is paramount in all of my decision making you know the back to david and goliath it was the faith of david that conquered goliath and that's what drove him that's what motivated him and that's what empowered him to face off with this giant Apart from that, David would have never entered the battlefield. It was Malcolm Gladwell who wrote that. Who? Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. Yeah, I can remember. He wrote that in his book. Anyone else? So, as I have been, yes, preaching for the past 41 years, 41 years ago when I decided to establish this society, what the the prep premise was that even then I foresaw what was coming and I said to people apart from having a life where one finds oneself rooted in a real spiritual practice and community you're not going to survive what's to come none of us are and again uh unless my motivation and my purpose for wanting to change this is larger than just my own survival uh nothing nothing will change because when it's about survival yes we will we will uh make bargains with the devil we are we are um to go back to what you're talking about the freedom riders um my church has a black lives matter sign out in front of our church uh-huh um i was doing this for the past I guess the past year and a half was just like a year ago or so. And it's been to face and knocked down like three or four times. Yeah. We keep putting it back up. Like, it's just incredible. You know, people don't get it. They, put, they, they, they paint on it all lives matter. <laughs> like, yeah. let's look at the history, you know. They yeah. don't see what's behind it and they take offense, you know, for yeah. whatever reason. But um, it's challenging, you know, but we're behind it. So, yeah. And it's in the spirit of the Freedom Riders. It's yeah. the same spirit, obviously. And it's a very minor gesture. I mean, it's not maybe not a minor gesture, but it's a gesture in the same spirit yeah. as the Freedom Riders. So. Yeah. Well, I think it's the old community that's doing it too. It's like yeah. the whole community's behind it. So. I think the old adage applies there. It's not how many times you get knocked down, but did you keep getting back up? up. <laughs> and we just have to keep getting back up. We have to keep getting back. Up. And again, the emphasis has to be on, on prayer and meditation um, yes. for ourselves all the time because, mm -hmm. as you said, what's coming down the pike is we're going to have to be very 
intuitive and ready to and not be afraid. Yeah. It's, it's going to be yeah. very bizarre. What was interesting, uh, again, during that period, and I had the opportunity of befriending Daniel Berrigan, uh, the Berrigan brothers, if you remember them, uh, years ago, and that's where I learned uh, this about the contemplative monk who sits behind me, uh, who is probably the single most inspiration in my life, uh, and that is Thomas Merton. And, the, and I remember one night sitting up in his, Daniel Berrigan's apartment in New York City, drinking gin and smoking cigarettes, um, talking about how uh, those of them, like Daniel and his brother Philip, and the nuns and the priests in the Catholic Church at that time, who were on the battlefield, who marched the marches, who went to jail and everything else, before they would go on any protests, went to Kentucky to visit uh, Thomas Merton, to sit with Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, who uh, lived in the monastery, did not come out and do the marching and what have you. And the emphasis was just that. This was a time to prepare for that. And the preparation was meditation and prayer. You know, and they knew very well that apart from, again, strengthening themselves up, you know, uh, you know, and 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 empowering themselves internally, uh, they could not meet the external challenge ahead of them. And that is true whether we're talking about this crisis in our nation or everyday life. I can I have often said that I have a distinctly different experience on those days I don't get to the zendo in the morning from those days that I do. You know, I begin my day with this and end my day with this. And throughout the day, I carry that with me. You know, so when I am looking at a product on the shelf, the question of whether or not I want to buy that product comes from that place and not from some greed inside me to have it or to covet it, or from my coveting of it, mm -hmm. you know, and all of that. So without the principle of identity as the context of my daily living, and if that identity, I believe firmly, I am convinced of this, uh, it is something other than I am a spiritual being having a human experience rather than a human being seeking spiritual experiences. Apart from that, uh, nothing's possible. Nothing. It is, and people are surprised to hear that this word is, is just as prominent in Buddhism as it is in the faith-based tradition. It is my faith in this Dharma that motivates, that supports, and that empowers uh, me. And I can't, uh, and, I, and again, the reading that I shared with you so far makes a clear distinction between people of faith and people who are not. When it, when the writer says to us, anyone who looks at the needy as freeloaders and moochers, and anyone who says that whole food and water, I mean, you do know that Nestle, who's now in charge of the water mostly, has said it's not a right, that you don't have a right to water. You do know that. The, v, uh, the CEO declared that, you know, that he believes that it is not a human right to have water. Uh, anyone who says that while carrying the banner of Christ or anyone else for that matter is ignorantly lying. 
Well, she does the uh, Contemporary Zen Community uh, Network and or take positions on social issues that affect the basic necessities of life. Do, do uh, I'm not clear about your question. The contemporary Zen community throughout the United States. Yes, yes, more than, more than the historical community. Uh, we are witnessing, as Buddhism makes its way to the West, and again, that's not to uh, suggest, I mean, you have... The, for example, I don't know if everybody here recalls, I think it was about 10 years ago, the monks who were murdered in uh, Thailand uh, and Laos, uh, whose bodies were seen floating down the rivers for days end, who opposed um, uh, the, the government at one time. So you have a history of that. In fact, I'm going to talk about one of those histories, Thich Nhat Hanh's history in Vietnam, for example. Uh, he was exiled from Vietnam because of that. You do have a historical uh, evidence of it, but you are seeing more and more of it in contemporary Buddhist uh, sanghas throughout the country in the West. Uh, in fact, in, it's called engaged Buddhism. Uh, you're seeing an emphasis on Buddhist communities to be engaged, yes. So you have the world-famous peacemakers of uh, Bernie Glassman, uh, in New York City that um, take their sashins to Auschwitz, take their sashins to where Montgomery, take their sashins to wherever injustice is happening and meditate right in the lion's den uh, and so forth. So yes, you're seeing an increase. Yes, just to have a positive effectiveness, one has to be somewhat organized. Yeah. Like the freedom riders. Yeah. They, they were well organized and they were tenacious. Yeah until results came yeah. that were positive. Yeah. You're seeing more and more of an increasing um, uh, community of people engaged. Yeah. Was the Zen community around during the time of our Civil War? Um, in America? Yes. Uh, no. No, Buddhism actually doesn't come to the U.S. till the 50s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't until the 50s, after World War II, uh, the first Japanese Zen masters, obviously, mm -hmm. which Zen was one of the first Buddhist communities to land on the shores of San Francisco, and from there Buddhism began to grow. Where the Zen Buddhist masters who actually brought it. Um, there was the uh, Hindu, and he you know, considered himself Buddhist, uh, Krishnamurti, who uh, also came around that time. But we don't see it around in the 1800s at all. You know, perhaps in the life of the Chinese that were in the country at that time. Mm -hmm. But no real teachers or communities being promoted. Correct. Yeah. Liz, did you have something? Yeah, well, what I was going to say was that uh, history repeats itself. The more I study history and I love history, it's what we're experiencing doesn't seem to me to be new. I mean, it, it's not. And then the, and the political infighting, I mean, you could take it back to ancient Rome and ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. Um, you can take it to the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, our own American Revolution. Uh, it just, history repeats itself. Yeah. And there's a great deal of ignorance and in, in our own era, um, corporations take advantage of clearly that ignorance 
combined with the help of <laughs> the aid and abetting of the government, or the, the government yeah. is aiding and abetting the yeah. corporations, and uh, you know, you, you just see it. Uh, yeah. and, you, know, and you, you take it just when I keep repeating that same story of two, two young black kids get hauled in for shooting dice in the street and get, I mean, that story just sticks with me. I mean, because I was there, I saw it, and they get fined several hundred dollars, money that they, they didn't have, but all of the corporate bankers, they were allowed to shatter this country's economy as well as, well as the yeah. global economy. And so... Yeah. Uh, they went to jail in Iceland. <laughs> right. Yes, you're right. Yeah. But again, why does history repeat itself? What is the cause of that? And the cause of that is because we've never learned from it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And, there, and what we're seeing today is a great effort, back to your reference to government and how they you know, work together, government and corporate greed, there's a great effort in our government to what? To get rid of the uh, uh, Department of Education? Uh, the history books, the history books are being changed. Yeah. Okay, yes, they are. the real history is being altered. Well, you it was know, never really told to so begin forth. with. Well, the real so never... and we're not teaching it in in schools, right. right? And again, there's nothing more vulnerable than an ignorant society. Mm -hmm. Nothing more vulnerable. To So, so far, we've really talked a lot about the effects. You know, all that we're talking that is going on and the fact that it's been going on for centuries, uh, we have talked about the effect of the cause. And again, if we never get, and this is a fundamental teaching in Buddhism, the Buddha said, if you never get to the root cause of the problem, causing suffering, if you never get to the root cause of suffering, then... Yes, history will continue to repeat itself over and over and over again. And the root cause, again, from the view of the Bodhisattva and the spiritual warrior, comes back to the individual's identity. And that identity being grounded in a life of integrity, which defined in Webster's as a strict adherence to a particular way of being. Too often we have seen, quote, people of integrity compromise that integrity. The integrity of the spiritual warrior is not compromised. The spiritual warrior does not compromise. One of the examples I gave on one of the Wednesday evenings talking about the, excuse me, the life of the spiritual warrior uh, is that for the samurai, one of the icons, it was better to die than to compromise the code. It was not only better to die, but the samurai would commit seppuku upon compromising his personal code and the code of the clan or the sangha or the community he vowed allegiance and loyalty to. So death was better than that. And I always remember the, you know, the words of Jesus who says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul in the process? 
And whenever we compromise our integrity for survival or any other reason, that's what we have done. We are not addressing the soulful issues, I think, in our society. We are not, as you said, uh, as you said, the churches are not, you know, pointing towards the need for real holiness in, 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 their, in religious life. Holiness is a word that has been, you know, pushed out of the conversation because of our disappointment of the few who have tainted uh, the church. But it is a word that needs to be brought into the conversation again and needs to be emphasized. We need to be talking about living lives of holiness, living lives of saints. From the Buddhist side, living the life of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is that being that recognizes his or her only purpose for existence is to live their life as a benefit for others, to bring all beings to uh, that identity and to empower all beings to uh, achieve cessation from suffering for themselves. And the Bodhisattva sacrifices his or her you know, life in nirvana, life in heaven, you might say, in order to come back again and again and again until that is achieved. So we need to be, I think we need to look at the language of this conversation, as I've been saying so far, and we need to inject into that conversation such words as holiness, such words as renunciation. You know, this is, again, there's too many spiritual communities, so-called spiritual communities, that are not talking about the difficult stuff. And thank God, I think I can say that that's never been my situation. Okay? Uh, just look at the numbers. Okay? All right? Uh, and all of that. And the difficult stuff is the, is the meat. The difficult stuff is the meat. And uh, we need to be talking about holiness. We need to be talking about renunciation. We need to be talking about, again, uh, generosity and charity. We need to bring back what, you know, in the faith-based traditions, those virtues, you know, those heavenly virtues as part of the conversation. And in the Buddhist communities, again, those precepts and vows, which I'm going to uh, share with you from Thich Nhat Hanh's community, that the peacemakers uh, vow, uh, we need to bring that back into the conversation. On that note, how do you feel about 12-step programs to address these issues of grasping and uh, compulsion that seems to be, you know, not just for the um, uh, the toxic things that people do to overcome their yeah. soul sickness, yeah. but uh, as a way to address uh, you know, the charity you talked about. People turn around and turn themselves around yeah. and people are going to fall down. Yeah. So it's a way yeah. of addressing those, you know, gambling, drinking, feeding, yeah. narcotics. You know. yeah. I, there, is, there is no doubt that the 12-step program has made a powerful contribution to awakening people to those causes of suffering. No doubt about it. In fact, I was engaged in the program for many years with my friend Vince De Pasquale from uh, starting point in Westmont and so forth. I would regularly speak there uh, on his invitation and all of that. There is no doubt. But the only, the only um, uh, other thing I would say about that is that I don't think it goes far enough. Okay. All right. 
By that I mean, again, when we get to that, what is it, the ninth, the spiritual, is it the ninth step, the spiritual piece of that? You know, when we get to the spiritual piece of the 12 steps. I guess the 11th step, prayer and meditation. Yes, when we get to that, again, everything up to that is preparation for the real work. And the real work is prayer and meditation and living a life of holiness. Because without that, without my practice and devotion to be, you know, when people ask me, why do you do what you do? The answer is always clear for me, because I'm a monk. Okay? That's what I do because that's what monks do and what have you. And there's no swaying from that. I don't do it to get to heaven. I don't do it to get enlightened. I do it because I'm a monk. And I can remember, I tell the story when we were in Cinnamon at our monastery, um, we had the 4 a.m. sittings every day. And I always sat in the corner of the monastery where the birds right outside that corner would build their nest in a big bush we had there. So when spring came, you could hear them sing, starting to sing as the sun was coming. So as I was meditating, the words came to me, birds sing, Buddhas sit. Okay? And that's why. So without that, again, I come back to, without the principle of identity as the motivating factor, if when we get to that 11th step on meditating and all of that, that is about identifying with my spiritual, my inner divinity. And it's about using those means to manifest my enlightenment in the world. And there's, very, there's not enough work done on that 11th step. At least I don't know too many people. And one of the reasons for that is we, we're, we, we, we have this cultural you know, hesitancy to talk about that stuff. And that's why starting points, best thing they had going for us was that Vince was a priest, you know, before he uh, left the priesthood and, you know, another poor guy that got caught up in love. <laughs> killed, killed a lot of priests. <laughs> I have a relative, well, I'll just tell a brief synopsis here, sorry. I have a relative who was a nun. She's Irish Catholic, the whole thing. So she went to, uh, I think she was in Brazil, um, and she was fighting the uh, the Marine Corps poachers, the people who were killing the Marine Corps and all that. So mm-hmm. she had an enclave there. It's like my first cousin, distant cousin, whatever. But she got killed because she was standing up to these people. So she was kind of doing her work, but yeah. people didn't like her for it. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. And, and again, and again, we need to, you know, someone once said it, well, that someone was Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King said, if you don't have something you're willing to die for, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is, again, it is, I, I know of nothing more powerful than one's faith to eliminate that fear of death or failure or, you know, uh, not winning the election mm-hmm. and all of that. I think that the scene in Gandhi, when Gandhi, the Great Walk and the, the march, whatever, uh, and I guess it was the English guards and, Indi- and Indians themselves who had to um, hit the um, people who were marching. Right. Uh, when I was watching, uh, but th- that 
ended, uh, that was the beginning of the, the total breakdown because the soldiers themselves couldn't do that, save that right. one or two times. But what, I, what, what it frightened me about, but I can see now why it was different. Uh, when they occupied New York, uh, the occupation of Wall Street, I was watching as cops were breaking arms and things like that on television. And uh, I realized that, uh, <coughs> you know, it's not to be taken lightly um, when you try to speak truth to power. But they did it more in a, um, there was, I think they were peaceful. They, they, they weren't, uh, but it wasn't in a, in a religious context. Maybe. Right. So that didn't give them that extra speaking truth to power right. and the cops. Right. And by religious context, I think you mean, at least that's what, this is I what comes up for me is, again, it was, it was, when you watched that going on, there was the, the bad language, there was the calling the cops' names. Right. There was, again, that hatred. Right. Again, right. the freedom fighters never Trained. brought yeah. that. Right. They never called the, the white cops crackers. <laughs> you know? right. they, never, they never spit in their face. They never, re, you know, Gandhi, when Gandhi was asked what his revolution was, he said, my revolution is every time the British strike me with a stick, I will not strike back. Okay? And again, you saw that, and Martin Luther King admitted that he took that whole uh, training from Gandhi's writings. You know, he trained the freedom fighters just as Gandhi trained his people and what have you. Uh, and yes, I agree with you. There, there was no spiritual root in that movement in New York. And at the same time, we had a different press. Yes. Uh, the press covered it right. with, you know, this the same way very, they cover everything yeah, else. This was very okay. uh, short coverage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah which is a, um, the, the, that comes up, uh, I was thinking about the you know eighties and the Irish um, thunder strikers and all that went down with them for jail cells and the hunger strike. That was I don't know the whole specifics of the history, but I just know Bobby Sands and all those people that you know just went on thunder strikes for what yeah. they believed. And I don't, uh, for what I can remember, I don't know if there was uh, that. Well, I'm sure there was animosity, but I don't know what kind of interactions there was between them and the guards that were in their mm -hmm. jails, but. Mm -hmm. Um, that strikes kind of spiritual for me. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know mm -hmm. if it's true or not. But yeah, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I just you know, I'm a long history. Yeah. But Rishi, can, yes, um, Rishi, could you speak? I mean, I don't believe Occupy Wall Street had much of a leader. Right. And I right. think that was. Can you comment on the difference between that and maybe something that's gone going on now with Trump or? I don't know if I want to draw some analogies in history, but they've been drawn. I mean, you have a bunch of unhappy people who are placing a leader on top. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not clear about. I'm just. I'm just thinking the movements in history that have been successful have had a leader. Is that is that generally true? Yes. I don't know of any movement that that uh, outside that context. Yeah, there was always a leader, and at least a shared vision, a purpose. Uh, much, again, of what I know about the Occupy Wall Street movement, there were also conflicts among the different groups right. that were there occupying. Okay. But it didn't have a spiritual base. No. It? Yeah. Yeah. So every movement that has had a, had a spiritual base and a spiritual leader directing them. No. Yeah. 
the movement, again, the human body, and again, Buddhism points to this, and, and you find it also in Christian teachings, where there is a comparison between how the human body operates, the community must operate. And so the body is made up of many parts, but the body has a head, and the body has a heart, and so if we use them, you know, uh, symbolically, yes, there's the need for the, the leader, there's a need for a purpose, a shared purpose, a shared vision, which is the heart of the movement. And we didn't see any of that up there. I think, I, unfortunately, the, you know, the intention may have, well, I don't want to say the intention, but the objective may have been noble. But again, what was brought to that was all of that personal stuff, yeah. all of that hatred and anger. You know, when I hear Jesus say, to conquer the Romans, make you no different than they, to be calling the Republicans evil and, and what have you, uh, that's the stuff that they do. I mean, that's what they're calling you. you know? I know Quakers for a while, uh, I used to be a Quaker for a long period of time, and we had uh, our peace secretary try to arrange for us to have uh, sessions where we would practice um, peaceful demonstration and, and lying down mm -hmm. and that kind of uh, thing towards the, uh, the pacifism. And, and, yeah. You know, but it's very difficult. You have to be, as you said, Anybody can't just go. You have to have been preparing for right. a while, I think, for the meditation. Right. Yeah. Any effort to bring about personal change in those habitual behaviors or historical behaviors, so let's use historical to uh, describe the global issue. Let's use habitual to describe our individual and personal issues. So whether I'm trying to overcome bad habits in my life, habitual behaviors of years and years of doing it that way, or whether I'm trying to challenge the historical behaviors repeating themselves over and over again, the same rules apply. I must train in confronting those challenges. And without the training, I can't expect to do it. You know, I cannot expect to do it. And there must be a purpose for it. And this is why, you know, therapists who work with obesity will tell you these diets that are out there that people try fail because the purpose is to lose weight. Okay? And rather than a larger purpose, which is to be healthy and to be whole uh, and to be able to be engaged in it. <coughs> So, individually and collectively, we need to take a look at our purpose first. What is the motivating force? What is the purpose? And again, Buddhism, Buddhism and the Bodhisattva in Buddhism says that the larger force, the force that is essential in either individual or global uh, uh, movements to make change, must be, again, the basic goodness. You know, that all of us, no matter who we are, possess basic goodness, and because we possess basic goodness, we merit whole food, clothing, shelter, a livable wage, health care. We merit all of that. Because we are, you know, a contributing uh, member of society. We merit that. Even if our contribution is smaller than his contribution. 
You know, there's the story of Jesus with the laborers, where the guys who worked a few hours at the end of the day and the guys who worked all day argued over the fact that he said they should all get the same wage, you know, because they showed up for work and what have you. So rather than this, you know, cultural thing. So I want to uh, share with you uh, what is called the 14th, 14 precepts that were established by Thich Nhat Hanh uh, in Vietnam uh, and his fellow Buddhist monks and laypersons when the war was going on over there. And these were, back to Vince's question, back in Vietnam, uh, you know, it was the movement, the anti-war movement, that led to uh, him being finally exiled from Vietnam and many of the monks imprisoned or murdered by the uh, Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese government. And I, th I want to read these to you because, uh, and, I, and I want to invite you to listen to them as the basis, the foundation of the spiritual warrior's life, uh, because that's what, they t that's what they are intended to be understood as. The first precept, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. The second precept. Do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. The third precept, do not force others, including your children, by any means whatsoever to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda, or even education. However, through compassionate dialogue, help others renounce fanaticism and narrowness. The fourth precept, do not avoid contact. Do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means including personal contact and visits, images, sounds. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. The fifth precept, do not, uh, <clears throat> do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Do not, uh, do, not, um, as the do not take as the aim of your life fame profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share your time, your energy, and material resources and talents with those who are need, in need. The sixth precept, do not maintain anger or hatred. As soon as anger and hatred arise, practice the meditation on compassion in order to deeply understand the persons who have caused anger and hatred. Learn to look at other beings 
with the eyes of compassion. The seventh precept, do not lose yourself in dispersion and in your surroundings. Learn to practice breathing in order to regain composure of the body and mind, to practice mindfulness and to develop concentration and understanding. The eighth precept, do not utter words which can create discord and cause the community to break. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. The ninth precept, do not say untrue things for the sake of personal interest or gain or to impress people. Do not utter words that cause division and hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things that you are not sure of. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. The tenth precept, do not use the Buddhist community for personal gain or profit or transform your community into a political party. A religious community, however, should take a clear stand against oppression and injustice and should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflicts. The 11th precept, do not live with a vocation which is harmful to humans and nature. Do not invest in companies that deprive others of their chances to live. Select a vocation which helps realize your ideal of compassion. The 12th precept, do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and to prevent war. The third precept, possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others, but prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. The 14th precept, do not mistreat your body. Learn to handle it with respect. Do not look on your body as only an instrument. Preserve vital energies, sexual, breath, spirit, for the realization of the way. Sexual expression should not happen without love and commitment. In sexual relationships, be aware of future suffering that may be caused. To preserve the happiness of others, respect the rights and commitments of others. Be fully aware of the responsibility of bringing lives into the world. Meditate on the world into which you are bringing new lives. And that is the basis and the context of what Buddhists define as being spiritual or living spiritual. And again, when you summarize uh, all 14 precepts, uh, it requires a discipline of the individual who trains in meditation and prayer and contemplation it requires an integrity of the individual who practices uncompromising uh, 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 virtues and principles of engagement and interacting in the world. And it requires, again, a faith that this is the truth, not a lie. Two, two great leaders that did not, uh, was not interested in uh, advancing their egos, 
and did not uh, sow division and hatred. That's the two words you used were Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Their goal was to bring people together for the good of everyone. Yes. We've had leaders throughout human history that sowed division and hatred and began wars. And Hitler is one, I can go on and on and on. The, the, the textbooks are full of them. Trump makes a statement that there will be riots in the streets if he's not nominated is not a sign of a good leader. No, and, and again, only ignorance could consider otherwise. Thank you. Where, where seeds of polarization, division, resentment, hatred, and greed are being sown, you know, it's not rocket science. It's not whether Donald Trump is this or that or this or that. It's in the fruits of his thoughts, his words, and his actions, that we see that uh, not only shouldn't he not occupy the White House, but he certainly should not have the power he has been given uh, to do what he's doing. This is going to, his, the effects of, of, again, of this polarization, if we do not uh, act for November 11th and beyond is going to go on for a long time. Well, the alternative is Ted Cruz. For me, Trump is really the mirror of this entire society. And not only the people who are overtly racist, but he is like the icon of what we have we hold dear, or we put, we put on the pedestal in this country and have for a long time. Yes. Which is the view of success as owning things and being famous and all that that we think is all external outside of ourselves. Yeah. So here he is, mirroring back to us this culture that has gone so decadent, so incredibly dark in its values. And so it's really not surprising that he's right up there. Yeah. We're showing us right. this right in our face. And, you know, there's so much anger in the streets. I mean, I'm in Philadelphia. And just regular people walking around, you can feel they're living on the last nerve and they're weary and they're, it's, they're exhausted and they're, they're there's a sense of like I'm missing out. What am I? I'm, I'm, I'm running for something, the new position or whatever it is, even to stay alive, whatever. But yeah. there's that energy that's going on, you know. And everybody's on the phone. Everybody's tapping their, you know. But that city, really. I mean, I, I go to New York City every other weekend, and the minute I step off that train, and I'm and I'm originally from New York City. The minute the train doors open, you feel that energy. Everybody is, everybody's walking at a certain. But that's, that's what has to be looked at for anything to change. It's but that's not, not just now. I mean, what I'm saying is that that's kind of I've seen that for years and years. Right, know. but this is the culmination of years. Listen, this goes right. back. I mean, you were talking about your father and the depression and everything. But you know, our country was founded by taking the lands of indigenous right. people. Mm -hmm. That is yeah. in our cellular makeup. 
Yes. You know, and we and so this this is you know centuries later, and so where does that go? Where does that karma go? Yeah, Trump was inevitable. Right, had to be. This what we see going on is inevitable. The Buddha said twenty seven hundred years ago, if you want to know how you got to where you are now, or why you are where you are now. Just look at the choices and decisions you've made from the past. And he said, if you want to know where you're going to be in the future, just look at the choices and decisions you are making now. So it, this is an inevitable result. Uh, we, we've, we are reaping today what we've sown in this nation. And this is why the, the hope, which we haven't talked about, that I would like to offer to everyone, is history has proven it's the darkest before the dawn, but the dawn does come. I mean, I, I, I mean, that's the thing that gives me hope, because I really believe that a dark night of the soul is the thing that cracks it open for the light. And so that's, it's painful. And I think what we're going to be going through is painful. Is painful. And that is why I come back again and again and again and again like a parrot in a cage saying, if you're not meditating, if you're not praying, if you're not participating in a spiritual community, you're not <coughs> going to get through this. You know, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the masters of the Buddhist world have all said the same thing. We are in a dark age, and that and the period of this dark age is still yet longer. It's it's not going to it's not going to change on November 11th or any times after that. No matter who you put now, the whole, the whole government, our whole system is so decadent. It is run by money, yeah. exclusively. Right. That's the deal. Right. And if you don't address, if you don't address Citizens United, if you don't address all the other laws, you know the 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 ending of the Civil Rights Act. If you don't address any of that, right. it doesn't matter who occupies sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah. It's, it's like we talked about earlier, history repeats itself. Like, this is, a, you know, like the Gilded Age back in the, you know, 1870s, 1890s, when there was that whole income inequality thing going on, and then as well as now. Um, it just, you know, it, it's just amazing that, you know, people are competing for $15 an hour wage and can't get it, and they're living, you know, working three and four jobs at a time. And people can't make it. It's just that desperation. People don't know where to go for help. Yeah. And then, then when they ask for help and the government tries to help them, they're called freeloaders. You know, it's where's our compassion? Like there's just no answers for so many people. And if you want to look at the, the people who are supporting Trump, I mean a lot of these guys lost their jobs because of what happened in the 90s with the Clintons and NAFTA and all the things which free trade. Right. And, and now there was an article in the New York Times last week saying, well, maybe there was something to the fact that maybe we shouldn't have done gone down that road because of all the good jobs that were all, all the arguments are rational. Saying. I know. All yeah. the arguments, we can find rationale, we can find logic, we can find reason for everybody's behavior. And we're not getting to the root cause that leads to government being able to make these decisions. We're supposed to be a nation of representation, okay? The root cause of corporate power in, in the world today. And again, uh, it begins with how I see myself and my relationship with the rest of the world. And, and again, we go back to the Buddhist teachings 
on the three poisons. If I, if I drink the cup of greed, if I drink the cup of hatred and resentment of another person because they don't agree with me or because of the color of their skin, and if I am indifferent to other people's suffering, that is all going to come back to me. And it's come back now to a whole nation. My only hope, again, is that I believe that it is the darkest before the dawn, and the dawn always comes. But it hasn't even gotten dark enough. Right. And just as a joke, we could all uh, visit Kima Chaudhry and Cape Britain <laughs> and stay for a while. <laughs> Things get really bad. We can all come, go to Cape Britain. Kima Chaudhry yeah. has a monastery out there. Uh, people have been saying like they did when Nixon ran, and like I did when Nixon ran. Cape Britain are invited all Americans. Oh. If Trump wins, you can come to Cape Britain. Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. And when all of that disappointment and resentment and anger gets to Cape Britain, yeah, where is it going to go? Right? Where is it going to right? There's, you know, again, I often, I often, uh, I often talk about uh, one of our monks here. She's, uh, she'll be back in May, Mitsumiko, uh, who uh, I talk about the days when the, uh, the monks and students trained in ways that I couldn't get away with today. And it was a difficult training, and I'll never forget the day she came in and she was crying in the spiritual direction room with me, and 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 you know all upset. I, this is terrible. I can't take this. And I said to her, "Well, there's no lock on the door." And she paused and composed herself and looked at me and said, "Roshi, where am I going to go?" <laughs> And that was the most profound thing that any student uttered to me in 41 years. Where am I going to go? Our, our country is very, very unique compared to the rest of the modern industrial world and other countries. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the racial divisions are phenomenal here. We, other countries that didn't have the slavery we have and then the immigration of uh, all the Hispanics over the last several decades, the divisions have been exploited by political leaders. And this is why we're at where we are now. The chickens have finally come home to roost. Yep. Yep. You exploit those divisions, eventually you're going to have this environment. Yep. And it was done by our leaders. Yep. And if you, if you let the wolves into the hen house, you can't complain about the wolves. <laughs> we bottle them in. Yep. <laughs> How have we forgotten? It's like, it's, you know, the 12-step the program came up. It's like any addiction, amazing. When you taste that, when you, you know, it's like heroin addiction. It is said that one needle and you're addicted, okay? Greed is like heroin. I mean, you know, it, it, when you go back to where I think the whole conversation, at least, of greed really surfaced with, was with the Reagan administration. You know, in the 80s, it was everybody suddenly wanted to become a millionaire. Vince and I were having a, a conversation about this one day, if you remember, 
when he was working on the grounds and we were talking about the difference in the generations and how you know the people who grew up in my generation and my father's generation what have you they were satisfied being plumbers and carpenters and, and, and they, they had a pride in that. Suddenly there was this shift that came in the 80s where you can become a millionaire. And people, you know, all of the programs that the banks offered for refinancing the home, the, that whole program was based on you can use your home to make money, okay, and become a millionaire. And then what followed that was, you know, uh, the, 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 the uh, realty, you know, everybody wanted to buy realty and buy it and fix it up and sell it to become a millionaire and, and all of that. So, it, you know, greed is like heroin. You know, when you get a taste of it, uh, it runs through you and takes you over. And that, I believe, is how it happened. I believe that the moment we promised the American people, and, the, and this was clearly a conspiracy of the bank, the banks knew, we know today, they knew they were offering these loans to people who should never have gotten it. And what does, what, when, you, when you go into a city or a neighborhood, when you go into a city, when the drug lords go into a city, they've already had the city mapped out of the most vulnerable people in the city where to sell the drugs. And that's where they go. They go to the most vulnerable, the weakest in the city, and offer them the drug at the cheapest price. At the cheapest price. Well, these bankers were drug, nothing more than drug lords, you know? Here's an opportunity for you to become a millionaire with your house you own, and all of that. And like any other drug, the addiction followed. The addiction followed. And the only way you can break an addiction Again, is we have like the, these, the model of the 12-step program, which the 11th step, is, which all the other steps are leading to. All the other steps lead to the 11th step. The 11th step being that spiritual life. Or you can, you can go cold turkey, which is what Zen training is about. <laughs> what is the 12th step? What's the 12th step? As a people when you it's what? Helping people. Yeah, and yeah. you've done all the steps and you are fortified, so now you have something of yourself to give away. Yeah, and that is, again, when you take a look at that model and the model in Zen Buddhism, the monk goes into training and eventually returns back to the marketplace to bring his training to the marketplace and returns to the monastery only to retrain again, to go back to the marketplace. The, uh, the you know, the 12... Uh, frames of the bull chasing the bull in, in Zen Buddhism is very similar. The, the, the final one is returning to the marketplace and bringing my enlightenment there. Yeah. Well, sometimes the lesser numbers make it a greater night. That's been my experience. Yes. So it's been truly enjoyable. It's five of nine. See how time flies when you're having a good time? I want to again remind everyone that tonight we've talked about it and the real work and the validity of what we've talked about comes after you leave here. And tomorrow morning we will be meditating and praying. Daiko will be leading that for me and, uh, and that will be from 9 to 11. And then we go into our Sacred Space Week and return in April and on the first Saturday in April uh, we launched the spring and summer training period, or ANGO, 
and that is where we stop talking about it and we walk the walk. Uh, so the first weekend in April, April 3rd and 4th, is a weekend session, and I want to encourage everybody to uh, register for all or part of that weekend and come and do the work of serious meditation. It is a period of silence during those two days and where we meditate, share meals in silence. Uh, those of you who will do the whole thing and staying overnight here in the monastery will sleep and live in the monastery as monks do uh, during that session training period. And from there through uh, uh, June or July, again, uh, much of the programs are designed for doing the work and not just talking about the work. So tonight we talked about it, tomorrow we return to doing it, and we will continue to do it through the summer until we go into our month of sacred space in August. Anything else, Chico? Not that I can think of Russia. And I want to encourage those of you who are here tonight <coughs> again, who are not members, to become members. We need members. We need, we need your help to uh, continue to do the wonderful work of getting people upset and uncomfortable <laughs> and discontent with their material ways. I'm just a material girl doing that. What's, how's that song go? Material girl? Yeah, material girl. Madonna, is it not? Yes, Madonna. Thank you for the privilege of being with you tonight. <laughs>